The wall around Jerusalem is built, and the temple is under construction. And that's where we find ourselves today as the Bible Bus takes us through chapter 7 in the wonderful Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Welcome to Through the Bible. I'm your host, Steve Schwetz. And in just a few minutes, our teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, is going to mention his notes and outlines that accompany our study. So if you haven't yet downloaded your free copy, you can do it now. Or instead of downloading them one by one, you can download our digital book called Briefing the Bible that includes all of Dr. McGee's notes and outlines for every book of the Bible. Just visit ttb.org forward slash briefing the Bible to get the download right now. Or if you prefer, we'll send an abridged paperback copy to you when you call 1-800-65-BIBLE. Now, a while ago in our newsletter and on our Facebook page, we asked you, our fellow listeners, to finish this sentence for us. As we study God's Word, I've realized Jesus is so wonderful because... Well, here are a few of those great answers. First is a Facebook post from a listener named James. Jesus is becoming more wonderful to me after being diagnosed with a potentially fatal and incurable lung disease. In the wake of this news, he has become more beautiful. Calvary has become more beautiful. His word has become more beautiful. Not only because of the thought of going home, but just the fact of who he is, all he has done, even what he is doing in me daily, how he has changed my views, my priorities, etc. They tell me I have to have a lung transplant in five years if I live that long. Whatever brings glory to God is all that matters to me. Wow, James, thanks so much for that inspiring post. You are certainly safe in God's hands, however he directs your life. Next, we've got a post from a listener named Kelly. Jesus is wonderful, Kelly wrote. That's what I've learned and want others to know. For some reason, people think that going to church is boring or loving Jesus is boring. It is the complete and total opposite. There is so much joy in Jesus. There is also peace, even in horrible times. We know this earthly life is all just temporary. We have eternity to look forward to. He went to prepare a place for us beyond our wildest dreams. Well, that's right, Kelly, and thanks for the encouragement. Our next post is from Sherry, who wrote, Jesus is so wonderful because when I met him, my life became whole. His word opens our eyes to his grace and mercy. It doesn't mean we will never encounter difficulty. It just means we have his help in carrying our burdens. You know, that's so true, Sherry. Thank you for writing. And what about you? Has Jesus become more beautiful to you as we study God's word? Why don't you tell us how? Or is there something specific that you've learned in our time together in God's word? You can email us at BibleBus at ttb.org or write to us at Box 7100, Pasadena, California, 91109. In Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C, 6B1, or post on our Facebook page. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, who's beautiful to each of us in so many different ways. As we study your word, Lord, may we be overwhelmed by your goodness and grace in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's Dr. J. Vernon McGee with our study of Nehemiah 7 on Through the Bible. Now, friends, as we come today to this seventh chapter, I hope, by the way, you do have your Bible open there and also that you have our notes and outlines. And if you do not, we want to invite you to write in and ask for them because we want you to go through the Bible with us in five years. When we finish the five-year program, we start right over again. Far as I know, this is the only program that is actually dedicated to the teaching of the entire Word of God. Now, we hear a great deal today about believing the Bible is the Word of God. 
But my friends, if we believe it, then we ought to look at all 66 books. In fact, we're coming to something today that's really a genealogy. Won't sound very interesting, but I think it's as much inspired as John 3.16 is. I don't say it's as important because I don't think it is. Not to us, but it's very important to God. Now, as we get to this seventh chapter here, we see that the wall now has been built. And we find that they begin now to protect the city of Jerusalem. The temple is being rebuilt, and many of the homes had already been built inside. They're still clearing out the debris. But now it's necessary to protect the city because the enemy that tried to thwart and hinder the work of rebuilding the walls is still the enemy. And he'd like to get inside the city walls and destroy the city. Now, will you notice here, and I want to read verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass when the wall was built, and I had set up the doers and the porters and the singers and the Levites were appointed. Now, what has happened here is this. All of these are appointed, actually, for the protection of the city, a very practical and very necessary protection, and also a spiritual protection. And I want you to notice that when it says porters, who they are, actually, the importance of the porters were that they were the watchmen. They were the ones that actually took care of the wall, that is, They were the ones that were on guard duty all the way around the wall, letting those inside know what was going on on the outside. That is, if there was an enemy approaching or there was danger out there. And they watched both night and day. It was a 24-hour job. And therefore, the standards were high. But we're going to find out they were not enforced as they should have been. And they are not to be indifferent to who comes and who goes inside the city wall. Now, here is something I want to say, and I trust I'm not misunderstood, because it has been greatly, I think, abused today. We're told that we are not to be indifferent to who comes and goes in our fellowship, because we're not to fellowship with all that are professing Christians. And I want you to notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 11. We've been over this already, so let me just remind you of it. And I'm reading 1 Corinthians 5, 11. But now I've written unto you not to keep company if any man that's called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one know not to eat. Now, may I say to you, that's a little different today. We give doctrine top priority. And very candidly, I think that's all important, that those who deny the inerrancy and the deity scripture, I don't think we should make them our brothers. And certainly we can't fellowship with them in the sense of worshiping. But Paul's not dealing with the doctrine when he says here, with one who's a fornicator. What about that man in the church or that woman in the church that won't deal with the sin that's in the life? We had a preacher in Southern California that got in trouble. It was a morals chart. He moved to another area, and he had the same thing happen. 
And yet the people were warned about it. It just about wrecked the church. In fact, it almost wrecked two churches. There is today such a low standard. We've emphasized doctrine, and that's good. But what about morals? What about conduct? That's the thing that Paul is emphasizing here, and the thing that actually is all important. And the thing he mentions here now is covetous also. What about the man that you have that's money-hungry? What about the man that's not honest in his dealings? Do you have fellowship with him? May I say to you, this is the thing Paul condemns. I'm wondering if we don't have a lopsided view today of this. Now, we are told John put it on the basis of doctrine. And when you put it on the basis of doctrine, you've got to understand that it's the entire body of truth. And in Second John 10, he says, If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. Now, the doctrine here happens to be the whole body of truth that the apostles held. That's what John's talking about. Now, today we find that there are groups that do not hold all of the doctrine, but they do hold the inerrancy scripture and these other things. That is, the deity of Christ and the fact he died for our sins, which is important. Now, does that mean, because we are not to have fellowship with them, does that mean that we're to sit in judgment on them? Of course not. And that is the difficulty. Paul says to a young preacher, 2 Timothy 2.19, The Lord knoweth them that are his. And you don't know, and I don't know. But God does. And we must be careful, that's all. And this idea today, to sit in harsh judgment on our brethren, because they don't do like we think they ought to do, is entirely beside the point, and of course, very wrong. Now, we are to understand that fellowship is worth too much to be frittered away by mere sentimentality. That is the thing that we need to recognize. And for a personal gain. Now, a great many men will shut their eyes. I know that there are certain laymen will shut their eyes to sins in the ministry. Ministers will shut their eyes to the sins of laymen. This gets right down to nitty-gritty, doesn't it? He says you're not to shut your eyes to it. You're just to break fellowship with him on that. You're not to sit in judgment on him who called you and me to be a judge. Now, it just simply means... The same old thing we've heard in our country today, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty, and therefore we're to be on our guard. Now, therefore, they had porters to guard the walls. They were very important. Now they also have singers. Do you notice that they are mentioned here? And the singers, and I'm not in that group, I can assure you. The spirit of praise is the spirit of power. We're going to see Nehemiah saying just a little later, in fact, in the next chapter, the joy of the Lord is your strength, and the spirit of praise is the spirit of power, therefore. And that means that we should be a rejoicing group of folk today. And that is something that's absent today in the church. The church is not made up of a happy group of people. Oh, I know that they laugh at a good story, and they enjoy a banquet, but they don't enjoy Bible study. You ought to stand where I stand and have stood for many, many years, and I can tell who's enjoying it and who's not. 
And it's always interesting to me who's not, because they're the ones that generally turn up to be the weak sisters that become actually your troublemakers in the church. They do not enjoy it, you see. And Paul says the mark of a spirit-filled Christian was this. He says, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now, you notice it's speaking to yourself. Well, I can speak, but I can't sing. But you sing in your heart. And my friends, if I've got any music in me, it's still there. It's never come out. And I guess it's in my heart. But my heart sings at times. I want you to know that. I wish I could sing. That's one thing I'd like to do. And it means a psalm here or to praise. It means, oh, how sweet the name of Jesus is. It means to him. Him here means ascribe perfections to deity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. My, how wonderful this is. And this was to bring joy into the life. I was sitting in the study of the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Salem, Oregon, some time ago. And there was a little motto on his wall, and I copied it down because I liked it very much. And this is the way it reads. Joy is the flag that is flown in the heart when the master is in residence. How wonderful that is. I tell you, when you're walking in the will of God and you're in the center of his will, and you're having fellowship with him, I tell you, you're going to have joy in your life. These are wonderful things, friends, that you have here. And that's made for a wonderful city to have the porters and the singers. And that's not all. You have Levites also. They were appointed. Now, they were ministers. Now, God calls ministers. And the writer to the Proverbs says, in Proverbs 18:16, a man's gift maketh room for him. And how true that is. Now, if God has called you to be a minister, he'll make room for you. He'll give you a place to serve. And that, I think, is the real tense. Now, will you notice here in verse 2 that I gave my brother Hanani, and when he says brother, it doesn't mean blood brother. Because if you'll recall, at the very beginning of the book of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah was serving in the court, of Ahasuerus, why one of his brethren from Jerusalem came. That means one of his fellow Israelites came. And that's who it is here. And he was the one that brought the report to him. And he was one of the leaders, apparently, in Jerusalem, and he'd come down on some sort of state business. And so now, since Nehemiah knew him, he says, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem. Why? because he was an educated man and had been to seminary. Is that the way your Bible reads? Well, mine doesn't read that way either. Notice this, for he was a faithful man and feared God above many. He was faithful, not educated. I wish I could get that over today to a whole lot of seminary students. There's a feeling today, and don't misunderstand me, we need an educated ministry. That was the beginning of the school system in this country was that they wanted to have an educated ministry. And that's necessary. But you can go to seed in that direction. And there are a great many men who apparently lack character in the ministry, but they're educated. And someone has made the statement, you know, you can educate a fool even. And that is true. And there are many educated fools 
in this world today, not only in the ministry, but everywhere else. But the thing that God wants is faithfulness. It's required in a steward that a man be found faithful. That's the thing that's important. Can your pastor depend on you? <laughs> Can God depend on you? That's the important thing. Can your fellow Christians depend on you? Are you faithful? And education's nice if you're faithful. It's not worth anything if you're not faithful. Now, will you notice here? And I said unto them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun be hot. And while they stand by, let them shut the doors and bar them and appoint watches of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, every one in his watch and every one to be over against his house. Now, the entrance was to be watched in the daytime, and watchfulness was for all at night when they didn't know what would happen. Each one was to watch at least his own household. And so God holds us responsible for at least our household, that which is next to us. And the Lord Jesus said, What I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. And today that should be the attitude of the believer. Now the city was large and great, but the people were few therein, and the houses were not builded. They were not all completed, you see, at this time. And a man might get interested in building his own house and forget to watch. And you see, the whole spirit of this thing, the way it had gone up, was the trowel in one hand and the sword in the other. And my, how we need both today in the Lord's work. Now we begin at verse 5 with a genealogy. And I want you to notice this genealogy because it's very important. I'm not going to read it because I'd have radios turned off all across this country. But it's worth reading and I'm going to recommend to you that it be read. It's the same genealogy that we had in Ezra, the second chapter. Why in the world would God waste so much printer's ink giving us the same genealogy? Well, I'll tell you why. The Word of God says the righteous are in everlasting remembrance. God says, I know these folks. I just want you to know that I know them. He's put the name down one place, and he's got a duplicate. He made a copy. They tell me that in Washington and some of the bureaus there that they make about 15 copies of everything. Well, God does pretty well along that line himself. <laughs> he gives it to you once, and he gives it to you twice. He says, now, you may not find these names interesting, but I do. I know these folks. They're mine. And these were the ones that they were in God's book. This is just a leaf out of God's memorial book. God says, I record their names. They were faithful. These are the ones that have been found faithful to God. Now, you're going to find quite a few of these in the Scripture. Here in the third chapter, we had one. And you go way back to Genesis, the 49th chapter. What a list you have there, those 12 sons. We had it in Second Samuel of David's mighty man. You have it in Second Chronicles, the first ten chapters. There are nothing in the world but names. And then Romans 16 is made up of a roster of names. Hebrews 11 is names, names of folk that have occurred again and again in the Word of God. Now, they are names to you and to me, but God remembers them. How wonderful it is. Now, let's just get down in this, and we won't go too far, of course, 
And my God put into mine heart to gather together the nobles and the rulers and the people that they might be reckoned by genealogy. And I found a register, the genealogy of them, which came up at the first and found written therein. These are the children of the province that went up out of the captivity and those that had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon had carried away, and they came again to Jerusalem and to Judah, every one unto his city. Now, here's the list of these. Now, their names are recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. Here it is. I do not know who they are. I drop down to verse 17. My eye just glances down, and it says, The children of Asgad. Now, who in the world was Asgad? Well, friends, Asgad was a man who was carried away in the Babylonian captivity. And his children went down there, his family. Well, in 70 years, and by this time, quite a few more years had gone by. I suppose that over a 100 years has gone by. And his family's been multiplying, and quite a few of them. But this is one of those, and every one of these 2,322 could say, I'm related to Asgad. I'm an Israelite. And somebody says, do you know you're an Israelite? And he said, I sure do. <laughs> well, Asgad was my great, 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 great grandfather. And I know who I am. May I say to you, there are children today that they say, I think I'm a child of God. I hope I'm a child of God. Well, Fred, don't you know whether you're a child of God or not? You know whether you trust in Christ? And he says, he that hath the Son hath life. Now, do you? He says, if you have the Son, do you have him? Have you trusted him? Well, then you have life. And, well, I don't want to boast. You're not boasting. You just believe in God. And if you don't believe him, you're making him a liar. God says, he that hath the Son hath life. Now, do you have life? You have it on what authority? Because he says so. These were written down. This son of Asgad would say, look here. Here's where my name's written down. I know who I am. Well, now, but there's some that couldn't. Verse 61. Oh, I passed over that genealogy, didn't I? And these were they which went up also from Telmila, Telharisha, Cherub, Adon, and Emmer. But they could not show their father's house, nor their seed, whether they were of Israel. They didn't know. They said, we think we are. We hope we are. We try to be. But my friend, that's not going to help you. You're going to have to know it. And they couldn't show their genealogy. And what happened? Well, the fact of the matter is, they're put out. Notice what happens in verse 64. These sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but was not found. Therefore were they as polluted, but from the priesthood. They could not declare it. And you not only need to be saved, you need to know you're saved, my friend. Now, will you notice here that somebody says, but how did they tell it? Well, there was the Urim and Thummim in the breastplate of the priest, and that told God's way. That was the discerning of the priesthood. Do you have eternal life? <laughs> well, my friend, you just go to the Word of God and find that out. That's important. And so we have here, Verse 73, now the last verse of the chapter. So the priests and the Levites and the porters and the singers and some of the people and the Nathanims and all Israel 
dwelt in their cities. And when the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their city, back in the land now. This man, Nehemiah, has done a tremendous thing, but he's not through. We're going now, in chapter 8, to have one of the greatest Bible readings that you've ever heard of. In fact, this was the first through the Bible program that was ever conducted. It's in the 8th chapter of Nehemiah. We're going to look at that next time, friends, and we hope you'll be with us for that. This is another one of the great chapters, and this is what brought revival to the land. Until next time, may God richly bless you, my beloved. Well, that's a great teaser for our next study. I hope that you'll join us. In the meantime, spend more time in Nehemiah yourself by listening to these studies again at ttb.org. Dr. McGee's entire five-year study is also available to you on our USB flash drive. Check it out at ttb.org or call 1-800-65-BIBLE, and we'll be happy to help you out. Well, that's all for us today. Be sure to meet us here next time. I'm Steve Schwetz, and I'll save you a seat on the Bible bus as we continue to roll through God's Word together. Through the Bible exists to take God's whole word to the whole world, and we invite you to stand with us with your faithful prayer and financial support. Where will God's word go today?